Hello and welcome to another edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Mr. Tilter Riser. Hello. And it's almost that time of year, isn't it? Put it this way, I actually thought the other day about what I'm going to watch on Christmas night. So it's that close. Are you trying to tie into today's film? No, I'm not. Although, as it happens, the first screening of this film, I think, was around Christmas time and the second. Would you say this is a Christmas film that we're discussing? It's not Christmassy in itself, but it's bitty. It's just full of bits where you can just zone out and then come back in and say, oh, it's him from Thing. Yes, I, I think this is the perfect Christmassy type of film to not watch. So you say in 10 past three on the day itself, you've had your Christmas dinner, the Queen's been on, the heavy duty stuff is going to be long later on, but for now, it's hard this or it's the ballet on BBC Two. Yes. Okay, yeah, we'll go with that. So today we're continuing our look at the Beatles and the film is Help and its reputation is lesser than Hard Day's Night and that was how it was in my memory. Not as good as Hard Day's Night but okay, I have to say on re-watching it I think it's much lesser than Hard Day's Night. Did you remember this to be better than it actually was? I did, yes. Maybe it's because I was very young when I first watched it and there's an odd kids film element to it and yet it's not really it's not really that kid friendly not so much that it's too violent or too sexy but the humor is not just flying over the heads of the kids it's trying to pitch itself over the heads of some of the adults it's got sort of overtones isn't it i mean the, the whole sort of setup and what have you it's not exactly you certificate friendly the idea behind it you know, the sacrificial ceremony, what have you, when it begins. You wouldn't get it in a CFF film, would you? It looks like one, though. Well, it does, yes, and it sort of plays out like one, ultimately. Should we say what your one-word review of it was when you were asked about it? Well, it's not a word that I like throwing around the place. For that reason, I'm going to slowly build up to it. I mean, within the space of the next sort of 10 seconds, I'm just going to blot it out, but it begins with R, and it's a word that you sometimes get thrown around with regard to culture of this particular era and perhaps more so even the 1970s and yeah it's got racist elements isn't it so let's quickly explain the concept because i think there's a better chance that people listening to this there won't be as many of them who've seen this film as might have seen a hard day's night okay i mean blasphemous that's another word you could use (laughs) effectively prodding and poking at Hindus and saying (laughs) because the general idea is there is a death cult based around the goddess Kaili not to be confused with the goddess Kali Uh, that extra I they've added in there is meant to be enough (laughs) no actually no this is Jesus Christ so you know it's entirely different So there was that, yeah, so right, death cult, they're doing a sacrifice, but the person being sacrificed has to be wearing a special ring. They don't know where the ring is, and it turns out, hang on a minute, how do they know this? They have film set up, specially, so somebody in this death cult already knows that Ringo has the sacred ring and is wearing it, and they just haven't bothered to mention this while the ceremony's happening. There's no explanation of how Ringo got the ring. How did the ring get from the death cult to just being picked up by a drummer in the UK? And so 
a death cult chase after the Beatles and try and cut Ringo's hand off. And because this plot is so thin, they introduce a second plot, which is a mad scientist is trying to get the ring off because because he's a mad scientist. Well, I think that you've pretty much summed up the entire plot, as it were. When we were watching this, I remember saying to you, first of all, I was getting sort of Children's Film Foundation vibes about this. Secondly, I was thinking this is clearly Ringo's film in terms of, you know, he, he's the most prominent of the four. We'll come on in a minute to the Beatles' personalities and how they do or do not get across in this film. But I remember saying to yourself that were it not the fact that it was the Fab Four and you just took this film otherwise and its plot and so on, it would be some dim and distant memory that you had when you couldn't get to sleep one night and you put on early days of ITV nighttime and this weird film was on and it was like Leo McKern and Elmer Braun and... Uh, Roy Kinnear, I think, I think he might have been there. And they were running around in the sand, chasing after somebody. And I think John Bluefall might have been there. And that would be it. And you would never remember anything else about it. And then eventually you'd find it, you'd find it like referenced in a film guide or something like that. And you think, ah, that's that thing I saw like 30 odd years ago. And it, it otherwise sunk without a trace. Or maybe it's the kind of thing where you went to your local video shop and Ghostbusters all the copies of that had gone out and The Godfather wasn't available and so on. And then that thing was sitting on the bottom shelf. And it would be called something like The Blessed Ring or something like that. And you'd recognise lots of names from it and think, oh, well, you know, lots of names, Leo McKern, yeah, it must be half good. Can't be that bad. And you probably wouldn't get to the end of it. That's the thing. It would probably <laughs> be returned to the, the shop, you know, sort of halfway there. You, you hadn't bothered rewinding it, but at the same time, they weren't going to need to rewind the entire tape. And as you go back... As you're going in, you see George Lytton coming out. <laughs> Shall I? Uh, you can explain that if you wish. Right? Yeah, well, no, we, we found, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Squiddy. Somebody sent this to us a while back. It was a promotional video for, I mean, there's obviously some sort of home video chain. I don't think it was necessarily blockbusters. It was basically George Lytton, and he was explaining, if you run a video shop, here's how you can make it a bit nicer for the customers and make sure they keep on coming back and what have you. Like, for example, that junkie is always hanging around outside, get him to move on, and and make sure that you've got lots and lots and lots of the newest blockbuster hits on the shelves because that's what people want and all that kind of thing. Okay, I don't want to get off too much of a tangent this early on. And then but... he picks up a copy of Help, and he says, now, looking at this, you might want to file it in the music section, but that would be a mistake. This gets filed alongside the Sandwich Man, the Wrong Box, <laughs> the Bliss of Mr. Blossom. Keep it there. Keep all the weird 60s stuff over here. And if you have a copy of Modesty Blaze, just chuck it in the bin. Right, okay. Now, I think we've earned enough trust with our listeners over the past four and a half years to not try and pull the wool over their eyes. So let, let's be absolutely honest. I said to yourself, before we start this recording, I'm not entirely sure that I've got 90 minutes worth of things to say about help. So there will be points in this discussion where I'm going to deliberately look for tangents to go off on and dead ends to go down and what have you. And this presents a perfect opportunity right from the word go. So video shops, come on, we're never going to discuss it again. It's not likely to come up in the conversation. So when did you first go to a video shop? Were you a member of your local video shop? When did you first get your first video recorder? Uh, we got videos from the Central Library. I think we got our first video recorder in 1984. I think the first video we got might have been Pete's Dragon, which is why 
Pete's Dragon is special to me, even though it's not generally regarded as a classic Disney film. And that's why I have a Pete's Dragon pin, which is made of all little sort of fake jewels to make it look like the uh, parade float at the Main Street Electrical Parade. I think there are things we can say about help. Now, hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. My turn. Right. 1987, VHS. I think it was October. We joined Azad Video. And anybody who's listening in Scotland will remember Azad Video because it was more than one of them. First video that we got out was Ghostbusters. Do you want to confess something just now, Till? Whilst we're on the subject. I've never seen Ghostbusters. Unbelievable. Or Ghostbusters 2 or Ghostbusters. I haven't even watched a complete episode of The Ghost Space Busters. <laughs> well, no, that, that one isn't so shocking. But did you hear that, everybody? Till has never seen Ghostbusters. I've never seen an Indiana Jones film. So I think that we need to rectify this in a forthcoming Jaffa. Anyway, the point was that... We didn't actually know in November of 1987 that Ghostbusters was going to be ITV's big film that Christmas in about a month's time. So we probably would have selected something else had we realised this. We also didn't realise that you could fast forward VHS tapes, which you'd hired from the video shop. And so we sat through all the trailers and Simon Bates because we thought that's what you had to do. Now, a couple of things about the films at the video shop. One was that the half-decent stuff had always gone early on. You ended up seeing some weird stuff. Some stuff that you didn't necessarily see turn up on TV too often. One in particular I remember was a film of Robert Hayes from Airplane. And it was called Running Against Time, I seem to remember. And it was actually quite a dull sort of drama about some guy who wants to invent time travel. But obviously it hadn't sold too well. So what they'd done is that they had redone the artwork in the front of the box and made it look as if it was Back to the Future. Like they'd drawn the font... And it looked like the font from Back to the Future. And they put Robert Hayes as a sort of cartoon figure with Michael J. Fox's jacket and what have you. There was even like the professor with his dog and all this kind of thing. And it was so blatant. But the film itself, nothing to do with that. It wasn't at all a knockoff. It was just, yeah, you know, too late. Got your money. You've put your two quid down. You're stuck with this now. Yeah, it's not what you thought it was going to be. And the other one which I seem to remember always being on the shelf, and I think that we actually had this about three times. I'm not sure we ever actually got to the end of it, was a film called The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And it was some sort of comedic gangster film. And I'm pretty sure there's somebody actually quite famous in it. I can't remember who it is now. Maybe it might even be Robert De Niro, I'm not sure. So there you go. So maybe at one point in the future we'll actually do a cast which we just reminisce about all the absolute crud that we got out of the VHS store managed by George Layton in circa 1987. So... I'm sorry, I kind of set a trap for you by, by making you say out loud that when we're having a conversation, you said, racist. Remember how it was a bit hard on Man About the House the first time? And then the second time, I realised why that might be. Because none of the attitudes in it are particularly poisonous. They're not malicious. I don't remember there being anything particularly racist about Man About the House. What was it? Not so much racist, but uh, they're very free with gay man's come to our party, he's funny because he's gay. I think, yeah, but this is the time of Bless This House. It's a fairly progressive little series in itself. Not Yes, that's the thing. It's a series about young people with young minds and young views. And therefore, any time they appear to be in sync with all the parts of their age that are remains of previous attitudes, it's more noticeable. And I think that's partially of this in help. This is the Beatles. These guys are pulling the 60s. 
these guys are always meant to be ahead of the curve, so I think that's possibly why you might have felt this more than any other film we've watched. Because like these are supposed to be the hip, young things. They're supposed to be above that. Of course, we know in a couple of years' time, they're going to be talking to the Maharishi, and then they're going to be going to India. I'm not exactly sure what George's religious views ended up being, but... I can't remember where. I, I, I remember seeing a book and he'd written the foreword and the first words were something like, everybody's looking for Krishna. So it's like, George is going to be encountering Hinduism and taking it seriously. So that's also something here. We're not saying, oh, the Beatles were a bunch of racists. It's like, that's why it's more noticeable. Okay, I'm not really sure why it was that that was my first reaction. Because in the interest of full disclosure, let's face it, we've watched a few things. Mainly sort of sitcoms and what have you. But I only just finished watching Curry and Chips a few weeks back. And that was a bit of a slog. But that was as much a slog because it just wasn't particularly good. Rather than it you know, being very much of its time. We've seen Love Thy Neighbour. We've seen... Actually, we just watched a very interesting documentary about the Black and White Minstrel Show. That's ended up on YouTube. It's originally a BBC4 time shift documentary from a decade or so ago. And with all of those things... Usually I'm sort of capable of just sort of stepping back and sort of assessing that and thinking, well, you know, you always come to the same conclusion, well, they wouldn't do that nowadays and what have you. But if you look at it at the time, sort of consider where it's coming from, what's the intent from the writer. Uh, we've spoken about Vince Powell sort of defending his work and what have you previously. And yeah, I don't know what it was about this. It was just, I was sort of thinking that because it's all so silly and carefree and what have you, that does that make it sort of worse in a way? I don't know. I mean, occasionally you get slightly flimsy arguments about shows which involve sort of people blacking up and what have you and how they are supposedly trying to make a satirical point. And sometimes they are, and sometimes that, that, that that's stretching the truth a little bit. There isn't any of that going on here, obviously. And it's not as if I'm expecting a film from 1965 that portrays Indians to only have Indian actors in it or anything like that. I'm not naive. I'm not thinking that that really would have been on the cards. But... I don't know, there's just something about it that made me have that sort of immediate reaction. And then I think we started talking about other supposedly sort of progressive programs of this era. Things like, for example, mid-60s satire. Things like TW3 and what have you. You notice that quite a few people who were sort of associated with that kind of uh, what's seen as very sort of progressive and very sort of liberally minded and trying to blow away the cobwebs and what have you. A lot of people associated with that still, they engage in skits and sketches and so on, which sort of make you feel uncomfortable looking back on them. And there's something there which seems to be as if it's sort of pulling in two directions. This isn't any of this make any sense because I'm not entirely sure yes. still why. Because when you say uncomfortable, reaction. it's not so much. Here's the thing, you sometimes end up in arguments with people saying it's not racist, it's not meant to be bad, and it's like, yeah, racist, it's the only word we've got, but it's not really the best word for it. Because if you're in a room with people from X group and something comes on the TV that's like, people from X group, they do this, don't they? And they talk like this, <laughs> that's funny, and they have no other characteristics. The people around you who belong to X group they don't necessarily write a stinking letter to the station. They don't necessarily kick off. The air just kind of goes out of the room. And then somebody goes, should we watch something else? 
And that is fatal. There are people who will turn a protest into something just to get attention on them. Some protests are well meant, some protests are not. But I almost think that protests are not really the worst thing that can happen to a work. The worst thing that can happen to a comedy is somebody just going, right, shall we watch something else? That's the people you have to be afraid of. When you say, oh, the PC brigade, oh, your humour is dead, you can't make jokes anymore. Yeah, you don't have to be afraid of the people who are angry at you. You have to be afraid of the people who just kind of like, look at their shoes. Laughter is obviously the best thing you want in comedy. Heckling, you can deal with. Silence is the worst. And so I think that's kind of what is happening here. It's making you uncomfortable because you thought, oh, God, if, if what's-his-name was around here, he'd just be giving me the look, wouldn't he? And, ah, oh, you know, there's a monkey's episode that I can't watch with my wife. We're not coming on superior. Obviously, we are doing things right now that are not good. There are probably things on these podcasts that will suck the atmosphere out of the room when somebody listens to them in 30 years' time. No, hang on. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. You don't need to go 30 years out of your way because, yeah, there's a recent example of this. But we'll come back to that in a second. Matt Lucas, isn't it? Yeah, it is Matt Lucas. Before I get on to that, okay, so I don't want to name any individual names. I've got one or two names in mind, but I don't think it's fair to point the finger at any one particular person because that's not what it's about. Part of what I'm thinking of here, and also this doesn't include any of the people who are prominent in help either, some of the people who came to the fore in things like mid-60s satire, for example, and might have been associated with satirical publications, you know, Private Eye or whatever it would be. I'm just using that as an example, but there's others. Quite often they're sort of held up as you know people who dare to take on the establishment, blow away these stuffy ancient sort of politicians, you know, your Quentin Hoggs and Harold McMillans and all that kind of thing, blew the doors open and waved through a whole new sort of era of progressiveness and what have you. And then... You see them turn up in, it might be a sitcom, it might be an advertisement, maybe a film, whatever it is. Quite often they'll just turn up and they'll be in full sort of blackface or whatever it is, because that's what the part calls for. And I don't know, it's it's almost as if you think, does your supposedly sort of progressive attitude have a price tag? At which point, if the money's good enough, you'll just do whatever the, the script dictates. Or is it that the progressive uh, satirical bandwagon was that just a useful, well, I just said it, bandwagon for you to jump upon in order to get ahead? And then when the, the parts start coming in, do you become less choosy about what it is that you, you do? Again, I'm not pointing the finger at any one particular person and what have you, but it's just a feeling that sometimes I get when I hear people talking about supposedly forward-thinking satirical shows i'm not I'm, okay cards on the table i'm not a huge fan of satire i don't particularly care for satire I, I don't actually think that it ultimately don't really think ultimately does a lot of people any good because i think that it it makes people overly cynical for one thing because it makes people sort of have the view that all politicians and all people who are sort of in industry or trying to be do-gooders or whatever they're all bad they're always saying they're all in it for themselves on the other side of the scale, it also acts as I think this, this is going to be a really weird quoting Noam Chomsky in a podcast to do a help, for goodness sake. But I think, and I'm probably misquoting them, but I think he talked about the sort of release valve idea. 
you can say, well, of course we don't have any kind of clamping down of free speech or whatever, because we have, have I got news for you on a Friday night? Therefore, <laughs> people have got their way of sort of fighting back against injustice and what have you. And then was it Chris Morris said that have I got news for you was the warm handshake and glass of port from the establishment? Yes, exactly. And the thing is that people sometimes, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum or you know whatever you're coming from, there's plenty of things that you can get upset or annoyed about or whatever it is. But the idea that that's all going to be taken care of with um, a few quips probably written by the same block of writers who were also writing you know, a similar show on Radio 4 that week and what have you, and another show on BBC4. I, I don't know. There's something about satire, generally speaking, which makes me feel that it's a very sort of lazy, and sometimes it's a very cushy sort of number for people who sort of get into it and can just settle upon it and what have you. And then when you see those people then turn up either just selling whatever the hell it is that they're flogging or as we've just talked about if you then see them sort of taking part in portrayals of people where you think hang on a second this is isn't this like when you're just arguing for equality and diversity and what have you in some nice little guardian op-ed the other day and now here you are playing a stereotypical character I don't know. Like I say, I haven't really thought this through. I'm not really arguing from any sort of coherent position, but all of this was just rattling through my head when we were sat here watching Help because partly I'm sort of thinking it's the Beatles and everybody's saying how new and modern and wonderfully non-stuffy the Beatles are and they're supposed to be you know, the big in thing and they're shaking everything up and they're performing in front of the Royals and in front of like American audiences and what have you and everybody's just in awe of them and yet here's this thing that just looks crass. I mean, there's no other way of putting that. I mean, it's, okay, aside from anything else, it's also a bad film. There's nothing in it. There's no plot. There's no semblance of anything going on. I mean, it really is it's night, uh, this is not a pun, it's night and day away from Hard Day's Night. Hard Day's Night was a really enjoyable, engaging little film in which you got to see a little bit of the Beatles' personalities and so on, and you had great support from, from the others and there, and it had a nice little self-contained storyline in it as well, whereas this, it's like, yeah, we, we, we signed a deal and we were obliged to make a second film or something. You you'll you know the background to this better than I would, but... Well, now Kerry has revealed himself to be a social justice warrior member of the politically correct <laughs> thought police with his hatred of free speech. I am going to play Center is Dead! hey! Sorry, that was a cue for the theme tune, but I don't actually have a centrist dad theme tune. To turn that on its head and to be kind to the Beatles. Something I said before I kind of put the cart before the horse. So these guys are in the middle of this who are quite happy to be surrounded by white people pretending to be Indians. Yeah, but then later on, they went to India and they went to India to learn something. They may not have kept up, but that's fine. They went to India. And you know what? They're probably making some curry jokes while they were there. They're not perfect. But that just shows the attitudes are not a curse upon them that they could never scrub clean. It just makes this movie a bit... <laughs> in places. Didn't even get Roger Delgado. <laughs> I don't really know, in all honesty, what sort of prompted all of that as a response to help. I don't know. It just it was, it was everything... Wait till we talk about the sandwich men. And we'll have this conversation again, but there'll be a lot more benefit of doubt being handed out. Well, no, you're probably right there. I'm going to hazard a guess as to why, because I've never seen Sandwich Man, but I know it's on our list of things to do. 
And I'm going to hazard a guess that it's probably going to be quite similar to help in some ways. But I think the difference is going to be that the people there are not holding themselves up to be something that they're not. And I suspect that that's why I'm probably going to give it a pass. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's double standards on my part. I don't know. Am I guilty of looking at this, not just for the prism of 2017, but also looking at this for the prism of the Beatles by their later actions and then applying them sort of retrospectively? Is that? I think what happened is you didn't enjoy the film on a visceral level. And it's like, right, what is the first big error I can pin on this that might go somewhere to explaining why I didn't enjoy the film? And it does pull in two directions. Because I think this is an anti-establishment film. It is trying to be a young person's film. And hang on, we've got a slight old colonel humour in here. What was the name of that film we saw with um, Marty Wilde? What a Crazy World. So, okay, so we already weren't particularly well disposed to the, the characters themselves and the fact that we were supposed to be in sympathy with them. But when they start singing that song in a labour exchange about how they're really annoyed because there are so many people there from various backgrounds who are standing in line with them. Do you get the same sort of vibe here as if it's something that's really sort of jarring? There's a couple of things as well. As you're saying, there is this, well, we have to make a film. We are United Artists of Film, but we're meant to be working as well when we're not touring we're writing when we're not writing we're recording and when we're not recording we're making a film and so to relax they're smoking a hell of a lot of pot and this is coming across in the well no immediately before the cameras roll or sometimes they'll just run off i thought it was like a sort of soft focus filter they were using but no i I see now that it was actually just the (laughs) overall smoky (laughs) environment and this means that they're just not engaged with anybody as well they're in this little group of giggling boys but just sometimes this eyes aren't focusing on the other actors this even ended up with a scene being abandoned it was meant to be seen at a drama school with frankie howard and wendy richard and it just didn't work there was a bit of a clash of temperaments i think frankie howard was a bit nervous about working with the beatles the beatles were a bit nervous about working with frankie howard so the beatles just acted about and the chemistry was not there, and there was some slight ill feeling. There's another element here, of course, this being a second film. We're saying it's anti-establishment, because by this point, they're superstars. They're millionaires, probably. If a beetle wants something, a beetle can get it. So whose side are they on now? And so sometimes the way they're picking fights, they're putting themselves against people just for the sake of it. And there's that whole thing of... John Lennon occasionally addressing people by their job. Jeweler, you failed. Addressing Roy Kinnear and Victor Spinetti as scientist. It's like, right, okay, so you're trying to say that you're not like these crazy grown-ups, but actually you're coming across as a bit more, yeah, well, I'm young and I'm handsome and I'm rich, and this guy in the jewelers, I'm just going to treat him like a (laughs) skivvy. So it makes them less likeable. And I think it's because the Beatles are not that bothered whether they're making this film or not. It's a job to them. Hard Day's Night was actually a way of telling their story. Look, this is what it's like. I've seen a room and a car and a room and a room. So there's something in it for them. There's something in it to communicate to all the screaming Beatles fans out there. It's hard work as much as it's fun. This, as John Lennon complained, they're like extras in their own film. And John Lennon said Dick Lester didn't tell us what it was about. Richard Lester's thinking, he gave an interview... 
where he said he realised that he couldn't do Hard Day's Night again. He couldn't go further into their personal lives because he said by that point their personal lives are sex and drugs. So he said he had to make them the victims. But the young, good-looking, rich victims. <laughs> this was a Columbo. <laughs> They'd either be committing murder or being murdered. They, <laughs> they wouldn't be the innocent parties. <laughs> what was the one that Joe Orton submitted the draft for? Up Against It. Uh, we don't have time this year, but we might talk about that next year. Is that actually a film? Does that, does that exist? No, it's a script. So it never actually didn't happen? I know there's a radio production of it, and there's a couple of films that the Beatles weren't in that were made, but that's for another time. So yes, suddenly they're less likeable. Well, you don't really get much of their personalities in this, do you? Apart, I mean, Ringo, like I said, he's the one that's sort of like front and centre for most of this. After Hard Day's Night, everybody said Ringo was the best actor. Apparently Richard Lester thought George was the best actor. But Ringo's the best actor in this. Some of his reactions make sense. Whereas the others... I mean, John really does not want to be there at all. And I'm curious how much of this was planned and how much of this is just them refusing to do as they're told. But there's a bit where they're going to a post box to post a letter and they're meant to be having a conversation. But they're not. John's just reciting one of his poems and Ringo's reciting it after him. There's a bit later in the film, and I wish I'd written the line down, but this is a bit later where it's like, here we are having a nice walk with the police. So there's a contempt here. There's a contempt from the Beatles for the film. And you either have to contain it or go with it, and this doesn't seem to really do either. So it's making the Beatles less likeable. I think there's a way of making angry, contemptuous Beatles likeable, but you have to put them up against a world that's really worth the scorn. Okay, this is sort of me sort of suggesting with a quick recasting here, but it's a recasting which could shake the very foundations of everything to their very foundations. I'm going to replace the Beatles with the monkeys. Now, will this work? What do you say? I'm going, to, I'm going to actually put forward the fear that this would be a much, much better film if it had been the monkeys. Yes, part of that is it's the other way around for the monkeys. The monkeys are moderately resentful in some ways. <laughs> Not necessarily resentful of their music careers, but resentful of the trouble their music careers got them into. You don't play on your records. Our records are the soundtrack to a television series. If the first Monkeys album had come out, Monkeys, songs from the television series might have been less of a problem. But marketing was determined to try and make them into a proper band. So if you give them a film like Help and say you have to act, you have to deliver lines and you have to somehow tell the stories, like, yeah, that's what we signed on for. We auditioned for a television series. We came here to act and sing. Don't think they would have had as much problem. Davy Jones would have been a hell of a lot more happy with it than the way Head turned out. You know, he said, we should have done something like Ghostbusters. <laughs> All the more reason for you to see it. Seriously, how can you never have seen it? Honest, no, no, hang on a minute. Ghostbusters, what, 1984? Been on television since 87. How can you not have seen Ghostbusters? When it came out at the cinema, I didn't go to the cinema. When it was on TV, I was watching or doing something else. Okay, they're both valid arguments, but nowadays, it's always there. It's there when you want it. At any time... Probably on a Absolutely, and when I want it, I will take it. But until that time, I'll do the other things that I want to do and can afford. I, I, don't, I don't get it. 
It's not like somebody was trying to convince me the other day that I would really enjoy the Lord of the Rings films. And honestly, I really wouldn't. I really wouldn't. And so there's no way that I'm ever going to sit and watch them. Just not interested. Before you watch The Lord of the Rings, you have to watch something else to really properly understand. What? No, forget it. You don't even, you don't even need to finish that argument. It's just, no, it's just not going to happen. I'm not talking about The Hobbit. I'm talking about Callan. <laughs> Gollum in The Lord of the Rings films is partially based on Lonely. Is this actually true? Yes, Peter Jackson has cited it. I don't doubt he probably went to Andy Serkis and talked him through that and once you can see it you can't unsee it (laughs) that is brilliant now do you know what I might actually give it a go now okay here's another thing then right Lord of the Rings the Beatles wanted to make Lord of the Rings with George as Gandalf Paul as Frodo Ringo as Sam Ganji and John as Gollum Tolkien wouldn't sell them the rights (laughs) I think there was talk at one point when they made the first, the animated version in the 70s, there was some talk at one point of United Artists saying, is there a way we can interpret their contract to make them always one more film and they can do the voices? So we're talking like six, seven years after the split up. Do you think we can persuade the Beatles to reunite to do voices for Lord of the Rings? (laughs) Despite all we've said, there are little bits of the Beatles' contempt that I quite like. The fact that they're not really cooperating for the ADR sessions. So when the gang turn that um, hand dryer into a powerful suction machine and they're meant to react and they just go, just particularly John, go, <laughs> those things. And then when they're laughing at Ringo, ha, 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 They do it later in when they're on the sledge on the ski resort and go, ha, ha, yeah, that business about the skiing. What was going on there? It was the location. Why? There was the money to do it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, great, we can have a holiday in the Bahamas and we can have a holiday in somewhere, Austria, somewhere like that. Okay, now here's a potentially tricky subject because I don't want to blaspheme against the Beatles. Certainly not. But, okay, you know what it's like when somebody is successful and famous and what have you? And then there's always that little point, well, it's not always that point, but there's often that point at which they say, well, actually, I'm not just a insert whatever here. I can also do other things. And then they either have a go at singing, like certain people are doing right now. Or well, I thought you'd never ask, okay, just for you. Love <laughs> has found me. Thank you very much, today's guest, Nick Knowles. They start writing books or, you know, they, they go on the stage or, or whatever the hell it is, or they become, God forbid, political campaigners. Oh, God, Russell Brand. With those kind of people, you quite often need somebody there to just sort of say to them, uh, look, me or mate, yeah, you're really good at what you do. That's your principal thing. This other thing that you're doing, yeah, you're no good at that. Don't let anybody tell you that you are. It's sycophants who are saying that. It's yes men who are telling you that you're good at that other thing. You're not any good at it. Did somebody need to actually say that to the Beatles? No, I don't think that was the situation. I think the thing was they had enough talent. They was like, you you know, you really have to do this. And initially it's like, yeah, fine, I'll make a film. That sounds like fun. And this is the point when I think they would have been happy to have stopped. They were happy not to have made help. They definitely did want to make a film, but more on their own terms. Oh, hang on a minute. They did that. Yeah. 
This isn't the film to say that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about that one, but yeah, we're not doing that today. No, we? I think Hard Day's Night showed that they could act, but Rinko's the only one who's done a lot of it. Okay, they're there because they're the Beatles. They're not there because they're actors. Given that they can act to the best of their abilities and you get people such as Norman Rossington and Victor Spinetti and John Drunken and other ones to do the hard sort of heavy lifting around them in the same way that you often get in TV. Quite often, I mentioned, I think I mentioned this before when we're talking about Hard Day's Night, you often get this in sitcoms where the lead is, say, a stand-up comedian, for example, and they're not really an actor. Then you surround them with comic actors to do the heavy stuff. Now, in Hard Day's Night, you could get away with that to an extent, but in Help, I don't think they're getting away with it. You've got four guys there, and I'm specifically sort of thinking of Lennon in this case as well. You've got four guys there who aren't all that fussed about being there, whereas there'll be lots of people out there who aren't the Beatles, but who are actors and would have absolutely killed for that part. And I know that it would have been a different film. It wouldn't have been as big a film because it hasn't got the Beatles in it. But nonetheless, having the Beatles plough their way through this in a pedestrian manner when there's actors who could have done that role far better. I don't know, it just doesn't sit right. I think it's a different case, because uh, we said on Hard Day's Night, yeah, Norman Rossington and Wilfred Bramble and John Junkin, they are there just in case the Beatles can't do it, just in case the Beatles are giving flat deliveries and are a bit stilted. And as it turned out, it weren't entirely necessary. I think they ended up being more there for the Beatles to play off there were excellent sounding boards. There were excellent ways of bouncing the Beatles' very capable performances off of. And for some reason, what's happened in Help is, instead of taking less than away, we don't actually need to completely surround the Beatles with more performers, more capable performers, more veteran performers. They can actually do it themselves. For some reason, it's like, right, even more, come on, completely engulf them. With capable performers, right? Eleanor Bron, yeah, fine. Yeah, Leo McKern, John Bluthall, yeah. Warren Mitchell, fine. Alfie Bass, yeah, get in there. Patrick Cargo, you want to jump in here and squash these Beatles? And so the Beatles' reaction has been partially to just disengage from the process. Their personalities aren't being asked for in this. There's tiny reflections. Paul is most interested in the belly dancer when they go to the Indian restaurant. So, yeah, Paul, ladies, man, that's fine. That's the only moment I can think of on this... It could be anybody. You could swap some of the lines around and not notice. I mean, George gets the best line in the film, but it could have been any of the other three delivering that line. It's not uniquely George. It's, yeah, that's a Georgism. Having established these very strong personalities. Actually, yeah, you've watched two Beatles films now. Do you want to give me thumbnail portraits of the Beatles as you see them from these films? I'd say that Ringo has... Uh, a nice vulnerability about him that comes across. He's the one who's going to get sort of caught up in something like the silly ring business and what have you, because he comes across as perhaps a little sort of naive and what have you. So, yeah, I would say that. I would say, as far as Lennon is concerned, he's the one who's sort of quick-witted and most likely to be sort of sarcastic and what have you, and he's trying to get that across as, like, lovable, sort of likely lad. Paul... Paul and George I'm struggling with, in all honesty, as far as... Paul's cute, Paul's lovable, Paul's friendly. When yeah, Paul, yeah, that's good. Gretchen that's good Franklin and Dandy yeah. Nichols at the beginning of this film and they're waving to them 
in what might be a crossover with How I Won the War, Lester fans. Paul's the one who stares a little bit longer and does his thumbs up. Paul's also the one who's most likely to start hitting on a girl. And George, subtle, but George is a bit like John, but he doesn't necessarily care if you like him. George is the one I would give, if there were any, the darkest lines to, the most sarcastic. John might be flippant sarcastic about something. George would be a little bit more acid. A sarcastic line from George should really cut the legs off from under somebody. Yeah, I can go along with that. I mean, like like I say, Paul and George didn't make the strongest impression on me in another film. You couldn't help but notice Ringo in Help because, like I say, he is sort of front and centre. And Lennon, I think that his... I remember saying to yourself that Lennon, if you spent a lot of time with him, I think that he would get really irritating in Hard Day's Night. And in Help, I think he is really irritating. So he's gone beyond that point now, uh, where I don't really think he is particularly likable. But again, if they are engaged in what can only be described as reefer madness for large periods of the filming, then that's going to affect their performances and then your appreciation of them, surely. But I can't think of any moments when it's like, oh, you missed that line. Was This is how you should have delivered that line. There's also that weird thing that they don't really care what's happening to Ringo. When there's that thing where they saw through the floor of the studio, the gang, so that Ringo will fall through and they can cut his hand off. The other three Beatles just look down the hall and go, oh, it was you that was buzzing, naughty Ringo. That sort of spoils you. Okay, I can only say as far as my own interest in it was concerned. That slightly affected my engagement with it because at no point did I ever actually think that Ringo's character was going to be in peril and that Leo McKenna was going to get the ring off him and they were going to sacrifice Ringo and that's how the film was going to end. I didn't you know, believe that that was ever an actual prospect. I know they're trying to be metafictional, so it's like it's all just make-believe, it's all artifice. When we might be laughing, let's not hide the fact that we've actually had to record the laughter later in a studio, but in the end that has the result of, why should I care then about what happens? Yes, if there's no engagement at all on screen, why should you care then? If they're not giving you a reason to care, even if the film was exactly as it is, but you stuck in one single little 10-second clip where you had the other three saying, look, I know that we take the mickey out of him all the time, but we're all really fond of Ringo and we don't want anything bad to happen to him. So let's make damn sure that nothing bad does happen to him. Then at least, then you'd have that. You'd have that little hook and then, you know, the, the, the film can progress and end the way it ends. But you don't get that. So you don't really have any kind of belief that anything remotely dramatic or involving any kind of semblance of uh, drama is going to occur. They're just going to faff around, do lots of spare acting, and then it'll somehow reach its natural conclusion, probably based upon the optimum length of the film, which is sort of what it does. The plot kind of sets Ringo against the other three. I mean, I haven't heard any stories, but you wouldn't be surprised if a tension had arisen within the group. The lesson that seems to have been taken away from Hard Day's Night is Ringo is the best natural actor. So let's just give him the MacGuffin, put him at the centre of the plot. And it's like, no, if that's the lesson you take, it, Ringo's the best natural actor, right, he can be the Norman Rossington now. And he can play the other three off of him, not against him, give him some setups. And there's nothing in the plot that arises from their personalities. He got a wise guy, a cute guy, a somewhat put upon lovable loser but 
his lovability means he's not really going to lose in the end. And somebody who's mildly pessimistic, somebody who's more cynical. Right, four personalities like that have to work together towards some end or against some bad thing happening. That should be a dream. You know what these personalities are like. Some of this is going to write itself, and it just doesn't. They just stand around commenting. Do you know what? I was just going to say there, do you know what this, this film sort of needed? It would be somebody like Peter Sellers. And then I've suddenly remembered <laughs> about the existence of the Magic Christian. So <laughs> yes, we, we have got that on the list, haven't we? I think We do have that on the list, yes. Yeah. I watched some making of documentaries, and there's an interesting bit in the kitchen of the Indian restaurant. It's a little scratchy black and white bit of film of them, I think, setting up the scene and Richard Lester's talking and it sounds nicer than it is. George and Ringo, possibly one other, are waving knives at him. George has got like a big carving knife and he's stuck a tomato on the end and he's waving it. And they come across really likeable in that. They look very relaxed. Why didn't the movie capture that? When you say relaxed... Also, one thing people talk about when they talk about how good this film is, they talk about how this is almost the invention of the music video. In Hard Day's Night, there was a much stronger connection to the story. Even when we take just little flights of fancy, like, I should have known better. It's happening in the train carriage. There's a reason for them being in the train carriage. We have the running around the field, can't buy me love. Yeah, it's not very plotty, but there is this element. They are relaxing. Why are they relaxing? Because of the system they're in of working and not much else in this the songs are kind of an interruption to the story so Eleanor Braun is with them and she's going to try and help get the ring off Ringo's finger so that the gang will stop being after them but first here's you've got to hide your love away <laughs> and there are satirical asides there's that bit where Leo McKern is having a conversation with a vicar about how similar their experiences with young people are there's that bit on the Ministry of Defence property and we see a box of explosives that says like one one hundred thousandth of the explosives used in the Second World War. But the Beatles aren't part of anything satirical, are they? They're not there to deliver the blow. The Beatles feel like an imposition. Richard Lester wants to make a metafictional satire on a certain kind of narrative, but he's not really playing fair with the guys the people he could use to deliver this are being treated like they're surplus to requirements so it's a film that the Beatles themselves aren't particularly fussed about making and if you didn't have the Beatles in it there wouldn't be any reason for the film to exist because it's not a strong enough idea for a film at all, plot wise not a brilliant arrangement for anybody really is it one thing I find helpful doing these things is while I'm recording I often have the thing in question playing on my TV and right now I'm looking at the bit, Another Girl, where they're in the Bahamas and they're playing Another Girl for no reason. None of the three, four, three, no it's four, narrative Beatles films are really musicals in which the songs advance the plot. Nobody seems to have thought about that, do they? I'm just thinking here, Another Girl, that tells a story. I have got Another Girl. Has there ever actually been a Beatles musical? 
by which I don't I know that they obviously didn't do a musical themselves and I know that also you get those shows which are bootleg Beatles etc and they might have some sort of silly narrative in them especially if they've been sort of written by Mike Reed or somebody has there ever actually been a musical which did weave in Beatles songs into the plot it's called Across the Universe and I believe Clement and Lafreniere were involved in the writing Eddie Izzard's in it I just wonder if anybody ever suggested that to them. Look, you meant to write X number of songs for this film. And so, look, when I sort of said this kind of story, this happens, could you think of writing something where you say that? Yesterday is on the Help album. It's not in the film. A lot of Beatles songs tell stories. So why not do some way of meeting that halfway? Okay, this is me being slightly bitter about the Queen musical. <laughs> Because across the first three albums, you could kind of, kind of botch together a weird Lord of the Ringsy fairy musical with characters. There's a story being told here, but of course that would mean doing a Queen musical where they weren't all hits. And that's the thing with musicals nowadays. You meant to go in humming the tunes, not come out humming the tunes. Thing is, though, that if you ask the Beatles to write songs which are going to advance the plot of this film, then surely there would be an excruciating song about Ringo's got a ring stuck in his finger. Ringo's got a ring stuck in his finger. Ringo's got a ring stuck in his finger. Ooh, diddy me, not sure what we're going to do about that. Have you watched many musicals? There's no song in The King and I going, I'm going to meet the King of Siam today. (laughs) He's called me over to teach his kids. You can actually kind of keep things fairly loose so that they can be removed from context. Whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect. Okay, that's partially led up to in the story, but you can take it out of context. It makes sense. The number of people who've taken the song The Rhythm of Life from Sweet Charity and tried to make a sarcastic song sincere is interesting. So it's a musical. It's not an opera. People can do the serious exposition in dialogue, and then you can have a song that just expands on what is happening in the moment. How can you say serious exposition and dialogue when we're talking about help? Well, we're not talking about help. We're talking about this other idea of a Beatles musical. Right, so the guy gets another girl, but it all goes pear-shaped, and then he sings Yesterday. That's two songs. That's a musical. Good night. I'm not trying to write it. Well, maybe you should. But it just seems interesting that nobody's thought of that. Well, hang on a minute, can we not have a go at this right now? Can we not write a Beatles musical right now? And then we'll get in touch with Tim Rice or somebody and then you know, make it happen. Let's do this. And then suddenly, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something. It was large and grey and had big ears and tusks and a big trunk. And it said, I am the 1978 film Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Arts Club Band. With the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton, Frankie Howard and his bondage robots, and Donald Pleasance performing a Beatles song, and Paul, just good friends Nicholas, is also here as well. That is the risk, I suppose. Why didn't the world learn that lesson and not have the jukebox musicals ever again after that? But why isn't that a great film? Because everything you've just described sounds fantastic. So why isn't that? a six-star absolute bona fide classic. When you get to the point, by this point in 2017, where it's like, if somebody said, never mind not seeing Ghostbusters, if somebody actually said, you know, I've never seen Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, and, and you would just look at them as 
as if there was some sort of, you know, like Vista from another planet or something. You wouldn't believe what they were coming out with. You can get good eggs and good sugar and good flour and buy the best oven does not necessarily mean you're going to make a good cake. There are other things involved. It's how you deal with your ingredients. It's monitoring temperatures. You can't just take good things. I'm actually kind of stealing this idea from a book about the Marx Brothers. I thought you were just reciting the script for this week's Bake Off. Groucho Harpo Chicken Sometimes Zeppo by Joe Adamson. I think that's what it's called. And he's talking about the Marx Brothers film Room Service. He says, there's this idea that if you get a good script and good actors and a good director, you'll make a good film. But that isn't necessarily how it works. Why am I talking about this? So, are you saying that you really, really want to talk about Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band 1978? I am sort of saying that, yes. Very well. The Blu-ray is out there. It is now officially on the list. We'll be back with another Jaffa Cakes of Proust. The next time we hang out with the Beatles, it's not really going to be the Beatles, but I can't say whether that's going to be the next show or the show after the next. We've got all sorts of exciting possibilities, and by possibilities I mean problems facing us. Have we had any good messages recently? Yes, only you should say that, because yes, we've had some top stuff. So I'm sort of walking back what's most recent, but we had a tweet from Ward Roofer, for example, who said... I've played Hard Day's Night episode to my uncle and fixed his assertion that he heard the podcast to be called Jeff Capes for Sooth. Or do you now have a title for your podcast? Well, no, I was going to say we should nab that ourselves. Could that be a spin-off? No, no, let's be generous. That could be our ITV too. We had a very nice recommendation. Richard Shaw Wright on Twitter uh, recommended a match game. Blanky blank chat. Thank you very much, Richard. We've also had tweets from... Chinny Hill 10, we've had tweets from Bean as a Carrots. Lapscat tweeted us, a glaring omission from the playlist has just occurred to me. This is a playlist from our recent Jaffa Jukebox show in which we played Beatles-esque songs. David Bowie's cover... No, we played Beatles songs. They weren't just imitations, they were actually written by Beatles. Yeah, but there was reasons why we couldn't just play Beatles songs, because of restrictions. No, we couldn't play Beatles records, we could play Beatles songs. Now hang on, this sounds like the early days of Radio 1. Did we get the Northern Dance Orchestra involved? But anyway, Labscat says, one omission from that, David Bowie's cover of Penny Lane when he tries to do a Northern accent. I haven't heard that. Okay, we'll put that in for next time. And also we've got a tweet from Chinny Hill 10 who says, if we ever do Interceptor, I presume that's the Thames TV game show of 1989, he wishes to contribute. Now, here's the thing, because Interceptor, that turned up on Challenge a little while back, and I remember it being one of those things that people sort of, previously they sort of remembered and said, oh, do you remember Interceptor? It was like sort of treasure hunt, but a bit, but not quite, and what have you. Umber scavengers. Why are we going to do that? <laughs> Actually, I think that might be one. Well, that's in the sci-fi fantasy thing, so I think maybe we'd have to get Ian. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I imagine he will fight tooth and claw for us to not do it now. What about Danny Bear's Ice Warriors? The unsuccessful spin-off, well not really a spin-off, but sort of related show to Gladiators. I know not of that. And thank you to everybody who's liked and retweeted us and what have you. If you're not already joining in on all the fun of the fair on Twitter, then we are at Jaffa's for Proust. Till where, if people were at all interested, could they find some of our previous work. Podnose.com. That's where you'll find us, Jaffa Gags of Proust, with our nice 
ish blue aquamarine-ish and orange logo. There's our nice blue, yellow, and white logo for The Sitcom Club, the podcast that started it all. You can also find links there to Jaffa Kick Jukebox. And next year, there'll be another show. Eh? Join the Jaffa Cakes family. What do you mean? What do you mean? That's all I'm saying right now, because it's still in the planning stages. We're probably going to pilot that before the end of the year. Speaking of pilots, keep eyes peeled for something that I'm making an appearance on. Oh. But it's not for me to completely reveal other people's plans. I see. So we'll see you for something equally thrilling here on Jaffa Cakes for Proust. <laughs>